You're listening to At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Jay Barry, co-head of U.S. Rate Strategy and chief U.S. government bond strategist at J.P. Morgan. The Fed's balance sheet normalization plan, known colloquially as QT, has been running in the background for nearly a year and a half now, and it has been relatively uneventful, with the total balance sheet decline totaling about $1.1 trillion from its peak. Though the process has been watching paint dry so far, as Chair Powell would like to say, we think QT will become more interesting in 2024. Notably, using data from the latest survey of market participants and the survey of primary dealers, median respondents see QT coming to a conclusion in 3Q24, with reserve balances expected to be around $2.6 trillion at the time, and overnight RRP balance is over $1.1 trillion. While the New York Fed's own analysis projects QT running through 2025 and assumes a much smaller RRP balance at that time. With this in the background, and given the evolution of the Fed's liabilities over the last six months, we think it's time to take stock of our thoughts on QT. And we've got three great guests to discuss this topic today. Michael Faroli, Chief U.S. Economist, Srini Ramaswamy, co-head of U.S. Rate Strategy, and Teresa Ho, head of short-term fixed income strategy. We're going to address what could influence the Fed's decision to bring QT to a conclusion, factors that influence this decision, such as the level of reserves and RRP balances, and we will discuss how these factors are expected to evolve over the coming year and how Treasury supply dynamics might play a role. So let's dig right in. Mike, I'm going to turn to you first. Can you talk to us why the Fed is running down its balance sheet? Um, how this policy tool interacts with the Fed funds rate, and how we should consider the path of QT going forward. In the last tightening cycle, the Fed ceased balance sheet normalization before the Fed began lowering rates, and reserve scarcity forced the Fed to inject reserves into the system via T-bill purchases. So how should we think about this period, um, and how should we think about the Fed's policy levers? Should they be moving in the same direction? Um, so I'll let you dig in right there. Thanks. Uh, okay, thanks, Jay. Um... So a lot to unpack there. I guess I would say that in terms of why the Fed is doing uh, QT, they haven't been quite as explicit this time around as they were in the first QT episode where they listed a number of reasons. Now, doesn't mean there aren't reasons, uh, one of which could be simply that QT provides a little bit of additional uh, policy restraint at the time, at a time when policy obviously needs to be restrictive. Another possible reason is that uh, reducing the balance sheet over time should reduce the Fed's exposure to um, to running losses on its balance, which it has been doing for uh, over a year now, running losses on its balance sheet as over time it'll decrease the amount of um, interest-bearing liabilities. And it'll also allow it to eventually, hopefully, get uh, get out of the business of holding uh, mortgages, which they are never, never have really been all that comfortable having a big mortgage exposure on their balance sheet. So there are a couple of reasons there uh, still for uh, for unwinding uh, the size of the balance sheet. And I think there's probably also in the background a bit of a political uh, uh, dimension here, whereby just having a very large balance sheet sort of raises the profile of the Federal Reserve in a way that may not um, be desirable. So how is this? And then I think you asked, how is this uh, different from uh, or how do, how do we think about these two policy uh, levers, whether they should be moving in the same direction? There had been, you know, a, 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 again, hearkening back to the first Q, QT episode, the saying that the policy lever should be moving in the same direction. Though we have seen, uh, interestingly, Chair Powell somewhat amend that uh, view recently, whereby 
uh, <clears throat> he's essentially said, well, if we're cutting rates at some point in the future, while QT has not completed, that won't be a problem because both policy levers would be moving toward normalization, i.e. the balance sheet would continue to get uh, back to the, the lowest, the smallest possible lever, uh, level con uh, consistent with their um, ample reserve framework. Uh, and, uh, and the funds rate would be moving back toward neutral, which they still have uh, penciled in at around two and a half percent. So uh, unlike the last episode, um, uh, they seem to be okay with potentially cutting rates uh, and, uh, and shrinking the balance sheet. So, so I guess I'll just stop there and, and uh, hand it back to you, Jeff. Yeah, no, so thanks, Mike. And I think really important to kind of understand how this cycle could be different than the last. And certainly, I think that influenced rates markets this summer. Um, I mean, in short order, we got the combination of the chair sort of helping us understand what you talked about, about QT going on, even potentially as rates fall next year, um, while a week later, we got the Treasury refunding announcement. And I think you bringing up sort of um, uh, political concerns uh, is an interesting one here. So there's been a lot of discussion lately about the the move in long-term interest rates, which has now eased a bit from its peak, granted, over the last week or so. But um, you know, you talk about um, being able to continue QT even potentially as rates are normalized next year. Do you think there's anything in financial conditions that would actually force the Fed to curtail its uh, QT process right here, right now? Uh, I don't see that as certainly anything imminent. Uh, for example, I think the move in longer-term rates that we've seen over the past uh, two or three months. Um, wouldn't warrant uh, a change to the current QT process. If anything, you know, I think a lot of that is probably what they were expecting to occur when they, you know, started hiking rates and hiking rates aggressively. So, um, you know, of course, there could always be some uh, much more disorderly move uh, in longer-term interest rates that might uh, force a rethink of that. But I think it would have to be a pretty dire. Uh, situation for the Fed to um, to alter the current plan, uh, provided we are not, you know, slipping into recession. And I think just for what it's worth, some of the work that we have done and that we actually posted earlier this week indicates that um, the Fed's share of the Treasury market is certainly a driver of, of long-term Treasury yields. But with where we sit right now, adjusting for that and the other factors that have been traditional drivers of long-term interest rates, that there's not a major disconnect now. So, you know, it would seem to sort of make the case that this should proceed um, as expected in the background as well. Um, so thanks for that. And, and I think with this as a background, now it's time to pivot Srini over to you. Um, so I think building on with what we spoke with with Mike, um, certainly there's a lot of focus on bank reserves. And if we go back to 2019 and uh, repo madness or the repocalypse or ever, whatever you'd like to call it. You know, we all remember that when reserves fell below about 1.6 trillion, that exerted upward pressure on money market rates. Reserve balances are still double what they were then, yet there's a lot of focus here on, on the fact that reserves have been pretty stable. Um, when we spoke in the spring, we kind of thought that there'd be a bigger drawdown in reserves as the TGA re rebuild occurred. Um, but in fact, they've remained pretty stable. So why do you think this is the case? And uh, what do you think we can discern from this? And what do you expect going forward on reserve balances, Srini? Um, yeah, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's definitely true that reserves have become quite sticky at much higher levels. Um, you know, I think um, many people have said, you know, I think even the New York Fed has said, uh, you know, a number like 8% of GDP, that's like 2.2 trillion, right? Like, so there is a notion that reserve scarcity may be there, but it's probably a lot higher than that now. Uh, why? Because, you know, the events of March, 
um, you know, I think I think uh, it's probably safe to say that banks in aggregate, um, the, the banking system's preference for cash, um, you know, and therefore reserves, um, you know, has gone up relative to what it used to be. Uh, and it's certainly showing up in the data. Like if you look at how sensitive res reserves used to be, you know, how, what was the statistical sens sensitivity of reserves with respect to both the Fed's balance sheet as well as, you know, things like the TGA, um, used to be pretty significant um, and has fallen off a lot lately. Um, now, to some extent, you expect that, for example, in like 2Q, right after you know the events of the, you know, the banking crisis of March, you expect that to some extent because there's other stuff going on on the Fed's balance sheet. But it is actually a phenomenon that's still in place even, even now, even in just recent months. Um, reserves are very sticky, uh, not that sensitive to swings in either the TGA or uh, the Fed's balance sheet, and I think it's uh, it's a reflection of where um, you know the banking system wants reserves now. It's just at a at a higher level, right? So I think um, you know you see it in in the data. The the banking system demands a higher quantity of reserves now than what used to be the case. Thanks, Srini. So kind of you know with that in hand, you know certainly we're thinking that there's reserves are stickier, kind of at higher levels. Um, you know I think the next sort of dynamic to consider here when thinking about the Fed's balance sheet is the other big interest-bearing liability in the Fed's balance sheet, and that's the RRP. So, Teresa, now RRP has been something that you are clearly very, very focused on, and um, the corollary to reserves remaining sticky here is that RRP balances have declined about a trillion and three, excuse me, 1.3 trillion from their peak just earlier this year. Um, and notably today, I think we did see, and this is recorded on Thursday, November the 9th, that RRP balances actually fell below one trillion. Um, for the first time in quite some time. So this certainly seems to be driven by um, money market fund as they've been pivoting out of RP and into T-bills. And, you know, as we've been talking about, there's been this surge in T-bill issuance. The bill share of debt has risen from 16% over to 21% in recent months, and that perhaps helped. And on that note, We've actually revised our issuance forecast forward um, after last week's refunding announcement. We think the Treasury Department will be done with coupon auction size increases by um, the beginning of the spring next year, and so that any incremental funding needs will be met with T-bills. And we're now looking for another $580 billion in T-bill issuance next year, um, and that ought to keep the bill share pretty elevated. How do you think the money market fund community will behave going forward into next year? Um, given what we have seen so far over the last six months, would you expect it to continue? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the money fund um, behavior will will likely stay the same next year. Um, so just looking back on what has transpired, um, you know, over the past couple months, uh, certainly money funds have taken down a considerable amount, and we've seen money fund WAMs extend uh, pretty meaningfully from the low single digits at the start of the year to now around thirty days. Um, the percentage of bills and money fund portfolios have also increased meaningfully too, um, from 10% at the start of the year to now around 30%. Um, but even so, by both measures, you know, we think there's still more room to, more room to go for the money funds next year, um, albeit probably in a more limited fashion. Um, and the reason I say that is because just looking at the history of WAMs over the past two decades, um, money fund WAMs have gone up as high as 45 to 50 days, um, particularly during Fed easing cycles. And bills as a percentage of the portfolio has gone up as high as 50%. Um, and we saw that, and we saw that occurred in, 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 in 2020. So, you know, 
in both those regards, there's still room to go on both fronts. Um, though the one caveat, as you might have gathered, is is that you know the the WAM expansion is somewhat dependent on how the Fed evolves. Uh, and so during periods when the Fed is on hold, uh, money fund WAMs have tend to be stable at around 30 days. Um, so to the extent that the Fed is on hold from here, you know we might not see as much extension from the money fund community. Um, but still, you know we don't think that should preclude the money funds from continuing to take down bills. Thanks, Teresa. Now, just one more note here, um, kind of on that front. Um, do, you know, thinking about the kind of the construct of T-bill supply, um, and, you know, you mentioned it that the introduction of the six-week bill, which is currently a near-permanent CM bill and is expected to become, at some point, perhaps a benchmark bill, um, you know, do you think that's a supportive of ongoing RP declines as well without having to change the wham of money market funds? Yeah, you know, if Treasury issuance is focused on the shorter end of the money markets curve, which, you know, sounds like that's their intent, that's as they're trying to, you know, raise a six week CMB to benchmark status, um, then this really shouldn't impact money fund WAMs. Um, it will still allow them to take on, you know, more bill supply. I should also note too, and then I didn't get to mention this earlier, is that, you know, we also believe money fund AUMs um, will likely stay elevated over the course of next year. Um, so all else being equal, that should also continue to keep the, the, the demand for T-bills pretty high going into next year. So all supportive of, of lower RP balances, all equal. Thanks, Teresa. So I think we're gonna kind of pivot this back, Srini. Um, you know, we have a lot of information in hand right here. Mike's talked about the preconditions for QT to end. Um, you've spoken about the stickiness of reserves and where they may become potentially less ample. Therese had spoken about the ability for the RP to continue to organically decline. Um, now, as we put the pieces of the puzzle together, you and your team spent a lot of work forecasting the Fed's balance sheet, both the overall balance sheet and the contours of its liabilities. So what's your outlook for the evolution of the Fed's balance sheet through 2024? And, and kind of more specifically, where do you expect reserves and RP balances to sit late next year? And what's the risk around QT? Yeah. Um, so... We, if we if we look at uh, if we assume that the uh, the Fed's uh, asset runoff caps don't really change, um, then that would say you know the Fed's balance sheet size basically will drop to something like six point just on a little under six point eight trillion by the end of next year. Uh, of course, the question is, can it go all the way, and will the plumbing permit it to go? Uh, and 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 that's largely a question on, around how big will reserves be at that point in time, and how big will the RRP be. Um, in that vein, I think, um, you know, perhaps one more thing worth mentioning is uh, your forecast, Jay, you, you, you noted that we're likely to get, you know, 300 billion more in bills than we were expecting previously. Um, and that, among other things, helps, um, helps, the, helps RRP to go down more um, than reserves. In other words, reserves we know will be sticky, the banking system demands it. Um, and on the margin, I think more bill supply is helpful as a substitute to the RRP um, in terms of uh, affording a way for reserves to stay stickier. Uh, so we see reserves basically going down to something like 2.8 trillion uh, by the end of next year, which is you know close to but just a touch above where we see um, you know the banking system sort of uh, lowest comfortable level of uh, reserves. Uh, we see the total RRP, uh, domestic as well as foreign, um, you know, falling to just a little under 700 billion by the end of next year. Uh, both of those are probably comfortable enough to preserve, um, you know, sort of the, um, you know, the dynamics and the short-term markets and the repo markets, et cetera. So we think 
there's a reasonable chance that um, you know uh, QT can continue through all of next year, at least in the sense of you know not being derailed by you know sort of these sorts of plumbing issues. Yeah, so I think that's an important point. And you know, one thing we haven't spoken about here is that certainly consensus expectations around QT have extended, and they extended after Powell's comments. I think this summer, and they also extended after how quickly RRP balances have fallen over the last six months. But that's still. On average, I think the median is looking for, for QT to end sometime in the third quarter of next year. So if our forecast is realized, you know, certainly I think given the framework we talked about with respect to rate levels, but on margin, keep rates somewhat higher and also lead to more, more issuance overall. Now, I've kind of got, you know, one more final question here. We've, we've wrapped this up into a nice modal view that, um, Mike, it seems like money markets and Fed balance sheet plumbing, as Srini just said, is unlikely to cause QT's end next year. At least we think so. And that's why we've got this forecast that we think QT continues apace throughout 2024. Um, you know, we did back at the earlier part of this podcast talk about financial conditions right now and how that may not influence QT. Um, but I think, are there any, any other factors that we should consider that could bring QT to its demise earlier than this sort of modal view that we've got that are not related to plumbing? Yeah, I guess uh, coming circling back to Powell's comments about normalization uh, occurring in both tools, if they were to cut the funds rate below some estimate of neutral, whether it's two and a half or whatever you want to call it, if they were to cut the funds rate below neutral, that would be an easing of policy and not a normalization of policy. And I think in that, in that circumstance, it would be hard to justify tightening by continuing QT while you have policy in a, you know, in an accommodative stance. So most likely that would occur if there were a recession. Um, so I think if we have a recession, that would probably be the easiest path to see an end to QT before uh, our modal view here. Thanks, Mike. So if it's not plumbing, it's the economy that we should be on the lookout for. I just want to thank Mike, you, Srini, and Teresa for taking part in the podcast this afternoon. Um, and I think this sort of wraps up our discussion. Hopefully, you've all found it useful. Um, I'd note that we published a research note on this same topic earlier today, which is available on JP Morgan Markets. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on November 9th, 2023.